0: Welcome to Creative Income, a podcast that focuses on making a living in the creative space. Whether you're an actor, filmmaker, musician, painter, or anything that doesn't fit the 9 to 5 mold, there is value for you here. I'm Lars Lindstrom. Let's get into it. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it's so good to be back. It's Lars Lindstrom. Man, it has been I mean it's like it's a little embarrassing how long it's been actually't even we won't even go there um, we'll just start with me saying I'm happy to be back I, I took a, a long break from the podcast and I'm not really entirely sure why things happen you get busy but um, I have good news um, the good news is I have recorded probably five or six episodes already that I'm gonna start releasing once a week on so that gives me a nice little buffer to get uh, the next ones lined up so that's um, that's exciting that's what we're doing we're back let's just call it season two. How about that? I see that sometimes on podcasts where they feel like they need a break from the weekly recording. So they come back and they say, guess what? It's season two of the podcast. So I promise it's not going to be, um, (laughs) two years in between seasons. Um, but, uh, you know, it's maybe we'll do a season three and at some point there might be another break, but, uh, anyway, all that to say, Guess what, guys? We're back. I've got some really cool guests uh, that I'm excited to start sharing. Um, The one today, I think, is probably... I'm just so excited to to start with a bang. Uh, Todd Ben Hazel, ASC. For those that don't know, ASC stands for the American Society of Cinematographers. It is the most prestigious group of cinematographers on the planet, uh, arguably, perhaps. Um, and they're very rare to come by, and when you can get their advice, it's uh, always much needed, and, and Todd is no stranger to really great advice. He's, uh, he's been, I, I, I would say for me, maybe he doesn't know it, but uh, maybe a bit of a mentor um, for you know the last 10 years, actually. He's been really awesome for me to springboard um, my reel or different shots I'm with, and uh, he's just this, an incredible source of knowledge, so I'm very very excited to share with you guys uh, this episode. A little bit of the bad news. For some reason, I don't know why, but my microphone defaulted to my uh, computer audio and not my actual microphone. So my, my audio sounds like garbage. Todd sounds great. Um, the good news is I'm not talking very much uh, in this episode. It's mostly Todd. So um, you know what? Let's just jump right in and then I'll share more about like, what's happened to me in my life in the last couple years and future episodes. Without further ado, here's Todd, Ben Hazel, ASC. Todd Van Hazel, ASC, which uh, I think you're the you're the first ASC person I've had on my podcast. Um, so it's an honor to have you. I appreciate your time, obviously. Um, so we'll, we'll jump right in. How did you get started uh, as a cinematographer?
1: Uh, I got started, I always want to make movies, my whole life. Um, and I went to undergrad to be a director. Wow. And then um, while I was at undergrad... I just kind of became the de facto DP, you know, all your friends you are shooting for each other and you're making each other shorts and little features. And I just became like the one that was shooting a lot of them and started to fall in love with it. And I had a, uh, this DP, uh, mentor named Jim Orr, um, and I was like a seeing these like 35 millimeter music videos that the school was doing, uh, which was such a gift at the time. Yeah. Um, and I was AM5? like, uh, this is undergrad at San Jose state. Um, gotcha. okay. And, uh, and that mentor, Jim, uh, gave me the advice that I should maybe try to get into AFI for cinematography. And at that point, I just wanted to go work. I just wanted to go be a director and a DP. And um, and he was like, well, if you try to get into AFI, it won't, it won't make your career, but it'll help mm-hmm. uh, because of the contacts you'll make there. So I kind of reluctantly tried to get into AFI. And by some grace of God, I got in. And then that changed my life because... I deeply fell in love with cinematography there. And um, by the time I left that school, I was, it was like med school and I, that's it, I was the DP. There's
0: the, there's the argument right online that you can either do school or not school in the film industry. And I, and I want you to uh, make the argument for school. What, uh, what made it worth it for you?
1: I mean, I also think that the argument can go either way. Like I do believe yeah. that both work. I think what worked about film school and maybe specifically grad school uh was that one uh I really really got trained and I really really learned how to collaborate with others um and to the the community that I made there which I think is kind of the point like you can make that on film sets or you can make that at school what's important is that you make the community I mean a lot of like the first features that I did were with AFI directors and a lot of the first jobs I got you know the DPs really took care of each other like you AC for each other, you gaff for each other, you give jobs to each other. So like that community, I mean, it's, I still remains, you know? So, um, I don't know if you can put a value, if you can put like a dollar sign on that, you know?
0: Yeah. Um, do you get a lot of your jobs from other DPs that, uh, you met at AFI that maybe couldn't take their, like their scheduling conflicts or anything like that? Cause I've heard from other DPs that it's like, where do you get your jobs from? For me, it's actually directors and producers. And uh, a lot of the DPs I talk to, it's like, no, no I get in front of the DPs that, you oh, that's know, it's like buddies, buddies within school that had to pass on a job for scheduling conflict.
1: Totally. I, yeah. I think initially in the early years for me, yes, that's how everyone's getting jobs. is like you're trading between DPs for sure. I think in recent years, I, I would say more often than not, the jobs are coming from producers and directors, you know, and through my agency, um, but just through like those relationships. I mean, I think still to this day, I will make recommendations for other DPs. Not that like, yes, actually, I guess, you know what? I guess it is sometimes like I'm not available <laughs> and more for like movies. It's less for commercials. Cause yeah. I feel like commercials, the agency already has other DPs they're pitching to. And it's like, you can make a recommendation, but often they're like, that's great. If you're not available, we've got four others that we loved, you know, but with movies, if I'm not available and I love something and I think someone's right for it, absolutely will I send names. And I think like, um, I mean, that's also how, like, I feel like uh, it's not just DPs. I think, um, like, a costume designer, uh, Mitchell Travers, yeah, made an introduction for me to Lorene, who directed Hustlers. Like, Wow. And, you know, and she, I, she had known – I came to find out later she had known my work and maybe was going to speak to me, but it was Mitchell who said, like, you really need to pay attention because Mitchell and I had done, like, an indie movie together and fallen in love with each other and wanted to work together again, you know? So it's all just community stuff, right? Like – Mm.
0: yeah that's incredible so I actually met you I think initially because I was buying some of your old gear
1: yes it's true
0: yeah right it's like well we both we both grew up in Glendora which is such a small tiny little town in California and so it's like and I heard about you through my life insurance guy it's wild it's the weirdest he's like there's another guy I think his name's Todd you should hit him up and uh and so my, my life insurance guy, I, I uh thanks, uh is that Jeff, I think his name, right? Yeah,
1: Jeff. Yes,
0: yeah, so I can't remember his last name. Anyway, um yeah, Do you he told me
1: what you bought from me?
0: Yes. I bought um your soccer seven plus seven.
1: Oh such a good head.
0: Yeah, which I still own. I still own it. And uh yeah, it's a great it's a great little head. I I it's in my garage right now and I kept all the stickers on that shitty case you gave me. Oh my God, will um, you photo that later? I got I will, I'd, I'd be happy to. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, and I bought your your Schneider filters. You had some ND Schneider filters. And then I'm trying to wonder what else. But my buddy um, bought your Alexa Classic eventually. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so anyway, so I want to talk about, obviously you you owned a lot of equipment on Alexa Classic. I think you bought retail for probably 70 something thousand dollars. So it's like, it's a it's a heavy initial investment. Um why why did you own gear initially and then why did you decide to sell gear? So I it's a kind of a two-part so we can break it down if you want.
1: Totally. Uh so at the time I was it was also a different time in digital filmmaking but mm-hmm. at the time the best that was out there was like 5D's and you know all like the Panavision like camera, or sorry, uh, Panasonic cameras and like yeah. but Canon had the 5D, maybe the 7D and mm-hmm the red one had come out, but no one had it. Um, and I was just frustrated with the quality of my work. I just felt like the work wasn't looking as good as I knew I could make it because of the limitations of the technology I could have access to with the jobs I was getting. So I remember hearing that the original Alexa classic was coming out and I made this decision to take out a pretty large loan, um, to get an Alexa, I mean, a full package, like an Alexa monitors, filters, uh, a lens set, the head that you bought. A lot of this stuff I bought used from like um, some connections up in the Bay Area. And then the Alexa obviously came new, but um, the idea was number one, so that my work would look better and more advanced. But number two to help me book jobs because I figured I could at the time be like a package deal, you know, and I was, these are smaller jobs and I didn't have an agent and it was like, I was hoping I could just be like, yeah, you get me, you get the full camera package ready to go and for a deal. And, uh, that was the plan. It was both to help get, help me get jobs as a DP and also, you know, make the money. But I was really only concerned with paying the camera back. I didn't really think it would ever be like a profit thing, you know? Um, so it was convenience first. Yeah, it was, it was an investment in my career mm. first yeah okay yeah. yeah
0: so was the was the initial idea that you could like make more money on your rates by having a rental package or more just like no no i want my work to look good
1: yeah for me it was i wanted to make enough money to survive and to pay off the camera the benefit of the camera for me was to shoot good looking stuff and to get better jobs so like i think i thought that like the money would come later just by shooting better stuff. And it was more about like investing in the career at that point. I just need to break even really was my goal.
0: <laughs> How did it go?
1: Uh, it went really well. I think it was the right time. I don't know if it applies anymore because there's so many, every digital camera looks amazing. They're all just like sensors on boxes and they all look great. And it's kind of, for me, it kind of doesn't matter what we use now, you know, but like um, at the time the Alexa looked way better than other stuff. And, like my work, I think did take a jump because of that, um, and I think I booked jobs because people wanted access to the Alexa. Hmm. Um, again, this is all in like the this is in those the world that I was swimming in at that time, which is like before agents and before like yeah. all the bigger jobs that I just didn't even know about. You know, um, I think that's so part started, of it though,
0: right? Where it's like
1: absolutely, that's, it's that's, like that's, that's how you, I'm getting at. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like I was in the community of of producers that wanted to hire owner ops. Um, and I made it easy for them. I just like show up with the entire package and I would carry those cases on airplanes, (laughs) you know, all 12 cases or whatever it was the fucking interspace cases and load them up on the thing and travel them around the country, around the world. And I just, you know, I think I was acting like I had a little 5D package, but I had like a full film Alexa package and it was a huge pain in the ass, but like. It's what we did you know you did a bunch of like traveling doc style commercials with a huge alexa on my shoulder which i just i wouldn't do now i mean we went to like ireland we were, like traveling in a van in ireland for two weeks with an alexa like cinema package um i don't know there's reasons i have back pain now you know it's like
0: oh man i know all about it i started mountain biking because of my back pain and it starts to go away so that's uh, that's good news um, so I, yeah, that's, uh, talk to me about now the transition out of owning equipment. So you, you've maybe got an agent and you're not having to rely so much on that own little producer owner operator package. Um, what does that transition look like for you? Actually, you know what, before we go there, can I, can I just ask how you knew even what to charge and what were you were charging back then
1: um, oh for God. your DP
0: rate and your, your camera
1: package? God. It's so hard for me to remember, but. Oh my God. The way I figured it out is I probably texted and called other friends and asked what you guys charge. And I Uh, think also what started happening is, like, um, I had a rate, which was probably 500 bucks a day for shooting. I mean, they called me – two. these producers called me 250 Todd for a while because I would come out (laughs) and shoot. Which is, like, such a mean nickname. (laughs) (laughs) But it's, like – Cause I would just for 250 bucks, I would come out and shoot these like little web. It was like early web content days, you know, yeah. We'd do these old fashioned things, and like it'd be like me in a 5D. So I guess I'm remembering it was 250 for a while. And then I think what happens is like somebody pays you more, someone offers you more. I learned to like find out the rate before telling my rate because what would happen yeah. is without knowing if you say your rate. whoever says the number first loses you know yeah it's um, that standoff
0: right it's like the western have you ever seen that meme it's just like what's your rate what's your budget
1: yeah yes exactly so but i think i learned to phrase it like which is true also is like uh tell me what you guys have and we can talk i want to make it work i want to do this project so like tell me what you guys have and we'll figure it out but what's really also going on there is you're learning what they expect. And by doing that, I remember the first producer that ever told me he was going to pay me a thousand dollars to do a job. And I was like, holy shit, you know, like (laughs) I'd never been paid a thousand dollars a day to do anything, you know? And like, of course. And so, uh, I think by that way, it's sort of slowly the rate increases before you have an agent, you know, same thing with the camera. I don't know. I was probably charging like I don't know, man, a thousand bucks for the full thing or 1200 bucks. And yeah. I just don't know if that applies anymore based on what things currently rent for. It was a different time, you know? Um, it's like 2000, I don't even, when did the Alexa come out? 2011, 12, 10, yeah. was it 10? 10. 10. So, 11, maybe 2011. Yeah. Yeah. So, but what started happening is I basically over about, I think two or three years paid the camera back, paid the loan back. So I had zeroed out. And what was happening was that, the jobs I was taking needed different gear. They needed wireless stuff. They needed different lenses. I was tired of shooting the same lenses. Uh, by the time you were outfitting the package beyond my gear, it's like it wasn't working anymore because the, ca- the camera rental houses didn't want to cut deals if they weren't renting the yeah. bodies. So it became, it made, it finally made sense for me to grow, to continue to grow in my career and in the quality of work I was doing to actually not use my camera. So mm. I sold it, as you know, um, yeah. and which is the only money I would count as profit, you know, beyond the paying <laughs> it back uh, and just so move let's, let's
0: assume, though, that you're making 1200 bucks a day on this rental package. Um,
1: were you at that
0: point uh, charging more than the $1,000? Were you able to charge $2,500 a day for your DP rate or $2,000 a day to start to supplement that rental income so that it made more sense that you were able to kind of make a like a net zero type of transaction?
1: I can't remember. I can't remember when it, wh- where that transition was. I do know that it's around the same time that I got my first agent, mm. and then, of course, the rate started increasing slowly, incrementally. So I would say by the time I was making more than that base, the early rates for DPing the camera was getting sold they kind of happened at the same time if that makes sense like by the time i was making more money i was working on jobs that couldn't use my camera if that makes sense
0: totally and i think there was like it was a transition right because i I bought your sockler head like a year before you sold your body or something like that so there so there was some time maybe it was even two years um where it was kind of like you were slowly transitioning out of this thing um can you talk to me about uh uh what your feelings on having an agent versus not having an agent? And what that relationship looks like, because I think a lot of people think, oh, I have an agent, they should do all the work for me when, when I think it's, it's not quite that right. It's a symbiotic relationship. Totally. So talk to me about uh, the
1: relationship with your agents. I mean, what I found is that you don't need an agent until they come to you. I think I've had mm-hmm. a lot of people ask me like, how, how do I know when I need an agent? And I really do think the answer is when you need an agent, they, they found you, mm-hmm. uh, Meaning that before that point, it's like you have to have a you have to have value for them as much as they you know they have value for you and you need to be bringing either doing work or bringing in clients that they want. Um, and also, in my case, I remember meeting with agents early on. A lot of them were really lovely and generous, but they basically said we don't have a place for you at the agency because they said basically you know there's different there's like they 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 didn't use these words but there's the beast at the top. And then there's all the people doing like the the really great mid level work, and then there's the the up and comers at the bottom who are doing the you know the smaller stuff, and that's the food chain, right? It's like the circle of life. As <laughs> as these DPs move here, these DPs move here, and one this DP here can't do a job, so then the agent takes a risk, takes the young up and comer, and then you know so. But they basically said that they they wouldn't take me unless they had room on their roster to build me up. They wouldn't be fair to me either. There wouldn't be jobs for me. So I remember there were years where like I had met with them, but wasn't going to the agency yet, you know? Um, hmm. so yeah, I think, no, does that answer your question a little bit in terms of like when to get an agent? They came to yeah. me with some things like, yeah, yeah. So
0: what, what did you shoot? What were you doing? Cause my, I'll tell you my issue is that I shoot a lot of these TV movies and I, and I'll send you some, I just, I just wrapped the film for Tubi. Um, last last weekend and mm-hmm. I want to send you some stills get your get your opinion on it uh, but I'm happy with my work I think my work looks great but the problem is like I'm doing TV movies for audiences of like house moms you yep. know what I mean it's, it's like it, it's not work that agents are ever it's never on their radar yeah and so like my my issue is like yes I've shot over 30 films I've done you know this, this made like a large body of work but at what point do agents go oh yeah that guy because anytime someone does a music video for you know Justin Bieber Everybody sees it. Billions of people see it. But uh, when I do, you know, feature film, it's like maybe a couple million people see it, but they're, you know, middle America. <laughs> so yeah. it's like yeah. not the people that need to see
1: it. Totally. I mean, I think okay. So two answers to that. One, the way I got my first agent was um, a crazy coincidence of like uh, I had I was doing very small commercials for this very small startup in New York commercial company like very like my age guys you know and they had a commercial that was slightly bigger for them so they brought in a producer that had come from slightly bigger stuff so we all got to meet this producer that had a little more experience and then he didn't know that i was a i mean he probably knew but he didn't realize just how much of a young punk i was because i'm on this commercial and he has no idea this is the biggest thing i've ever done and it it was small in hindsight it was small but at the time it was big and um So he started hiring me for some future small jobs and his production manager also started hiring me. And she had a job where her DP, it was a couch commercial and her DP got sick and she, um, she called me asking if I could replace him on this couch commercial. And I did. (laughs) And, um,
0: an actual couch
1: commercial, (laughs) a literal couch commercial. Um, (laughs) and then, the agent of the DP that got sick wanted to know who replaced his guy and looked me up and saw, I guess some of the work I had done and called me and reached out and wanted to rep me. So I was with him for a year. I was totally unhappy there. He never got me a single job. It was night, it sucked. But during that year with my own contacts, I happened to start shooting a couple things that I felt like looked like what I'm trying to do. And, um, I got in contact with, um, artistry, which is where I'm still at. And that happened because of a producer that I was doing a bunch of music videos and commercials with, um, Kimberly Stuckwich, who I think is also responsible for probably 50 young DP's careers in this industry. Um, Mm. she connected me with artistry where I got repped. Um, and they were one of the people that said for the first year, like, we don't have a place for you yet. But then a year later they did, you know, um, interesting. But I think that kind of leads into my second part of this question answer, which is, like, I know how frustrating it is to be not shooting work that you feel like represents, like, what you know you can do. Or even if you think it looks really good, it's for the wrong market. I was doing all these Samsung uh, phone commercials that looked good, but they were for the Korean market, which is great. But, like, the Korean market, the the, the tone of the commercials was very, like... Not like high end American. Not it was just like a different thing. So no matter yeah, how many flat years, lighting and kind of interesting weird saturation and yeah weird hyper color yeah. comedic like da da da. So no matter how yeah. many years I was I was making okay money and I had this great content. And I love doing those. I love that community of filmmakers and we're doing like product commercials. But like that work couldn't translate. You know, it's like I that would never get me an Apple commercial ever. You know. Um, <laughs> so i actually I think that. the thing think, that got me uh, my
0: friend did you kelly erdman was in one of them do you remember do you remember her? yes
1: of course i do yes yes she was yeah, yeah that's yes, right exactly yeah. so, i remember she
0: posted it and it was like yeah my the dp taught it's like oh my gosh there you go
1: yeah yeah i mean i think the thing that did get me the agent was the smaller projects that just looked like something i was trying to do and i think yeah. they're smart enough to know like they're going to see the work and know what the prestige level is and where the eyes on it are. But I think what they're more interested in, especially with like us is like building us and seeing what Mm -hmm. the potential is. So I don't know. I probably got repped there because of the tiny friend favorite music videos I'd done, you know, not the, not the bigger stuff that didn't have any cachet.
0: Yeah, no, that's, that's good. I, I like that insight. Um, so talk to me then. So your agent's hustling for you, but I assume that your hustle never dies. Right. So what does it look like for you to be meeting producers, meeting directors, getting out there and trying to get some of these, I think, ultimately bigger feature films that you're now starting to do? Um, you know, it's like you, you, like you shot winning time, uh, for HBO with Adam McKay. I mean, one of the coolest, uh, TV shows I've seen in recent history. Um, so how did you meet Adam McKay? Like talk to me about some of these like connections and contacts that you're able to, to culture.
1: I mean, the way all this works, it's just community, man. It's the same. It's like the same way I just kind of talked about how I got the couch commercial. It's how, <laughs> which led to the agent. It's the same way that led to everything else. I mean, like, you know, I, I was doing small indie movies and small, music videos and small, you know, web commercials and some producer gets a bigger job and then you're doing bigger jobs or, you know, I had done a couple of like under a million, half a million, uh, $200,000, $100,000 features, you know, um, Mm -hmm. and while doing the work, you make the contacts while doing the work, you make friends with these producers and other filmmakers. I mean, like the way that winning time happened for me, is through a series of just doing the things and meeting people. Like I, I did this movie called uh, the strange ones, which was, I think like it was definitely under a million. And I Mm love that movie so much. It's like a beautiful indie movie passion project we did. Um, And on that movie, Mitchell Travers was the um, costume designer and Mitchell comes from bigger movies, but he had done this smaller movie because he loved the script. He loved the directors. And we really got along on that movie. And then, Years and years and years and years pass by and then, you know, I'm doing my thing I'm doing fashion and music video stuff and slightly bigger movies, but you know, and he's doing his thing and during his interview for Hustlers He recommended that the director Laureen take a look at me and I think yeah. she had already I believe she had seen like my Janelle Monet work, which had been a I'd done a couple of Janelle Monae videos, which At that point in my life, I was kind of being like, man, I feel like I'm getting burnt out on music videos. But at (laughs) least the work, I felt it was looking like something I care about. I was kind of like, there's something I'm trying to do here with fashion and women and power. And it's like it's kind of happening sort of with the Janelle Monáe videos. And then I think Lorene talking to Mitchell, whatever happened, she reached out to me and I interviewed for the movie Hustlers. And I worked my butt off to get that movie. And... Uh, that was my first studio movie and Adam McKay's company, uh, they executive produced Hustlers, uh, which is how I made that contact. And then, you know, when, when the pilot came up, Adam asked me to do it and that's it, you know? So it's like, it really is. I just feel like your community expands as you are making things you love. It's like, you're, I don't know. You know?
0: Yeah, that's great. Um, you mentioned working your butt off to get the movie Hustlers. What does that
1: look like? What are you doing to win that contract? I mean, I tried to show up. I I mean, I make big um, lookbooks for interviews. Um, not all the time. It depends if it feels like it's right. Uh, but there's a balance to like having ideas, but also allowing the conversation to, to, to like, I, I would never want to show up to an interview and be like, here's how I think the movie should look. But it's more like, if the director wants to talk about my ideas, I, I want to be prepared. Yeah. So for Hustlers, I mean, there's been interviews I've done where I had full lookbooks that it never got brought up. I didn't ask like director didn't want to know about it. They wanted to tell me what their vision is. And that's great too. But I would never want to be in the position where they say like, Hey, show me what you're thinking. And I'm like, well, I haven't really, you know, um, but with Hustlers, I just, fell in love with that movie and fell in love with the script and I just wanted it bad. Um, so I made a pretty big lookbook of ideas and could, was just ready to talk about it with Lorraine. And I think I got lucky that we both had a really similar, we had a really similar vision for at least like how we want to start talking about the movie. And then once we were doing it, we figured it out together, you know, but
0: yeah. You know. yeah. Was that your first movie that you did with Josh Hensel, your graphic gaffer?
1: That was our first, uh, it was Hustlers before after blood. Yeah. Yeah. That was, That was the first movie I did with Josh. It was not the first project we've been doing. We begin our asses kicked on music videos and commercials for a a while together. Nice. Yeah. That's sort of like, I think uh, on the fashion stuff and the music video stuff, that's where Josh and I sort of developed the language that we used on Hustlers, like the lighting style, the wireless, the ways to do fashion lighting in a more, in a faster, more improvisational way. And, things like that. Like we were building it to, it somehow was the right progression, you know?
0: Yeah. No, I'm, I'm curious, like you, you did the strange ones and, uh, you know, for less than a million dollars, how do you go from making sure that's lit the way you like it on such a small budget to something like hustlers where you've got, Hey, you know what? We're in New York city. Let's put three 18 Ks across the building, you know, 600 feet away and backlight this room. Like, like how do you go from, not having a budget and still getting the vision you're looking for.
1: To having a budget uh, and and how that translates. I mean, scaling up is easy. The thing that it's so funny. <laughs> it's true, man. You're in these interviews and they're like, I when I before I'd done hustlers, I was be, I lost a lot of movies, a lot of like five minute R movies, six minute. Because it was just like, well, you haven't. How do we know that you can do the thing on yeah. a bigger movie? And what I want to say is like, guys. Like, oh, how do I do it when we have a pre-rig team and a rig team and when we show up, it's actually just literally we can start lighting and shooting immediately and we have, like, four times the amount of crew and everyone's way more experienced. How do I make my day when, like, man, if you had seen what we pulled off on Blow the Man Down when, like, you know, one-in-one crew, two (laughs) key plus one crew... (laughs) In the snow, didn't even have a dolly. We were like laying Dana dolly on the snow oh and just hoping that it wasn't bumpy and like you know, I was showing up to help pre-light the uh. this lobster three sixty cage thing in the in the rain. We have no money to bring in additional people to pre-light. Like you know what I mean? It it it's just it's so yeah. funny to me, like uh <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, and you lose the first three hours of the day because we have to show up, load in, and light on the same day, and then there's no one to derig it, so we also lose two hours at the end of the day. Like, it, it's, yeah, you get the point, you know? Yeah. Um, but uh, I think creatively, it's some ways no different. You just, like, what are the things you can control and what can't you control? And it doesn't, like, on Blow on blow Man Down or on Strange Ones, we had limitations, so we built an aesthetic around those limitations. You know, like, okay, for example, like uh, on Hustlers, we wanted to expose outside the windows so you could see all that wealth outside the windows. So Mm. if we could, we would put 18Ks outside the windows and light up the room with the 18s and then expose outside. And then you can shoot 360 and you're done. On Blow the Man Down, we wanted to see outside the windows because the directors had this idea of wanting to feel the town and like wherever you were in the small town, you could feel the rest of the town, which is an amazing idea. It's like the citizen Kane thing, but that's an expensive idea. So what we did, because we had no money is we basically measured all the windows in a space we were shooting. And we built little wooden frames with ND frames in them. And we basically, we had two DS sixes, maybe two DS nines, the digital Sputnik lights. Those were like our major lights. I don't even think maybe we had a, HMI, we might not have. We might have just used the DHM. (laughs) And what we would do is if we were shooting this way, we'd put the NDs in the windows in the background, and then the windows that were off camera, we'd remove the NDs and use the lights. And then once we did a turnaround, we would cover the windows with ND and you just chase it. And, you know, so it's like you work with the means you have, but you make a plan beforehand so that you are able to control the aesthetic with whatever means you have big or little, you know? So in some way, I don't know. It doesn't, it changes because you're just like, it's a different size canvas, and you know, different size paint brushes. I mean, a great example is the one you brought up, like the uh, the rooftop on Hustlers. Yeah, oh, such a pretty scene we had, we had money to put uh, light on a light on a condor, but like if we hadn't had that money, we just would have designed a look on that roof that was more based on like ambient and I would have hid things on the ground and it wouldn't have looked as maybe as epic, but like it still would have emotionally worked, you know? Yeah, yeah, but because you have the means, you've got the time and the
0: budget. Let's do exactly what we want to enhance. Yeah, the story.
1: you have the. And the funny thing is about it is like also with scaling up is it's never enough. I mean, I remember being on that roof and thinking about that backlight, and it was like we were struggling to get that backlight to be bright enough. Yeah. And I had to open yeah. up. I, I my dream was to shoot that at like a five six, and I remember on the day we had to shoot it at like a two eight or a two. And I was like, we failed. For me, I was like, I failed <laughs> as a filmmaker today because the bokeh was like super out of focus in this way that for me didn't feel like. I was there was something in my head of like this deeper depth of field on the roof and like instead to me it looked like a little a little too modern and mm. um, and I was bummed out but like it's like well, it's never enough you know like
0: <laughs> well I think it looks amazing it's it's probably yeah. one of my favorite looking films in in, uh, in recent history so no, it's a I'm a huge fan of the work man and uh, and I think it's it's just so cool to see the recognition I think from people that uh, I mean at the ASC awards it was like. Todd Ben Hazel's the talk of the town, you know, for me anyway, just like, who was saying that shit? (laughs) No dude, anybody. Like I I was like having conversations and people's eyes would start to wander and I'd be like, what are they? And it's like, and they would go, that's the guy that's showing time. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm serious everybody's, it's, it's incredible. It's it's such a cool show. And and you actually, I want to talk to you about um, you were able to direct an episode or two uh, uh, for Winnie Time. Is that right?
1: Yeah. 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 Uh,
0: How, how did that happen? Talk to me about that.
1: I mean, I think it happened because I just think on Winning Time, I just was one of the creative collaborators on that show. And it's kind of a wild, crazy show. So um, yeah. I don't know. I just feel like it just kind of naturally made sense season two. I mean, it's something that happens, I think, with DPs on TV yeah. shows. And especially I feel like on Winning Time, it made sense just because I had been there since the pilot and created the kind of style and look with McKay. And I don't know, it just it, it just kind of happened naturally. Um, it was a blast. I love that experience. It was amazing.
0: Are you repped uh, for directing through your same agent of artistry
1: or, or is that something that's No, I'm now? not rep for directing? Um, I, I'm really trying to just, I mean, yes, my agents did the negotiating for the directing, but like, I, I'm at this point trying to continue focusing on DPing and like, I just learned that I loved the directing thing and I'm, I'm open to what that looks like in the future, but I, I love shooting and I love collaborating with people. So like the ship continues to move forward, you know?
0: Absolutely. That's really cool, man. Uh, t- talk to me about what advice you have for young uh, artists starting out, whether it's uh, cinematography directing or maybe painting or anything else. like what uh, general advice do you have for people?
1: Hmm. Man, keep making stuff. Mm. keep making stuff. and I don't know, my mentor told me something. He said the difference between the people that make it and the people that don't are it's who gives up and who hangs around long enough. And I feel like, That lesson comes back to me so often. It's like, it takes way longer than people realize. And it's way harder than people realize, I think, to get to where you want to go. Like in so many ways, like to be making the kind of work you want to be making for yourself, to be recognized for it, to be making enough money to pay your bills, like all these things, it takes a long time. And there's dips up and down. And I think it's like, it's during those up and downs and during that really long journey, can you find, can you keep the fire? Can you keep that inspiration? Cause people see, especially in filmmaking on set, like I, we always recognize who has the passion and who's been burnt out. And it's sad because the people that got burnt out, they got burnt out. They were, everyone got into filmmaking cause they were like excited and want at dreams. Like no one gets into filmmaking cause it's a smart business decision. Really, you know, and like those who can yeah. figure out how to, Keep the fire. They those are the ones who other people want to work with. And then they bring them along, you know? So I mean this from crew all the way up to all the collaborators, you know? So I don't know if that's good advice, but it's the best advice. Yeah. You've got to make I can only talk in like filmmaking, but like you have to make stuff that looks or feels or whatever, whatever job you are doing, like that feels like you. There's so much stuff out there, there's so much noise. And I think I that's what agents are looking for. And I'm sure that's what director's looking for. It's like something that feels personal, even if you're doing work that isn't personal. I mean, I remember like during, especially during those early years, like a lot of these commercials were so stupid for stupid projects with stupid creative. And, but me and the director like made it cooler than it was. I mean, I've told this story before, but like, what was, what was the commercial for? It was like, I don't even know, man. It was like a documentary commercial about some person working in the science field, but we like shot it like two four zero black and white, you know, and our what? reference was like American History X. And like, <laughs> and the thing looks amazing. And like, that led to work, you know? So I think it was like, we constantly like over-delivered, you know, and just treated every project like it was the coolest thing, even if it wasn't, you know? Yeah.
0: I love that. Well, cool. Thank you so much, man. I'm not going to take any much more of your time. I uh, appreciate you being here and, and uh, all the words of wisdom. Uh, where can people find your work?
1: Um, on on my website, on uh, on the artistry website, on my own website. If you Google my name with an extremely difficult spelling of my last name, uh, it's <laughs> all out there. <laughs> Just uh, Todd
0: B-A-S-C probably gets you there too now.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: So cool. Well, thank you, man. Appreciate it.
1: Thanks, Lars. Appreciate it, yeah. dude.
0: And there you have it. Todd Van Hazel, ASC. Man, what an honor. I think that ending monologue on his, what advice does he have for future artists is probably the favorite I've had on the podcast. Go out there and create you guys. It doesn't necessarily matter if we're making money immediately or for everything we do. Um, I mean, even Todd does things, you know, he's, he's so established in his career now but he still does things on a budget if he likes the project if he can see himself in in the work that he's doing so i just i so happy to have him on and for this podcast guys welcome back um we've got more episodes coming out weekly now uh and stay tuned please uh, go ahead and share this podcast with your friends and uh let's keep it going